The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. In 1983, Dr. Gregor Reed had a wild and crazy idea. He pondered, what if lactobacilia bacteria could be good for your health? It was an idea that was years ahead of his time. Back then, probiotics didn't exist. No one thought of or considered the microbiome. In fact, the term microbiome didn't exist. Dr. Reed faced ridicule. He says, oh, I was called a whole host of names. Dr. Reed, however, looked over the horizon and around the corner of history and foresaw the use of beneficial microbes tr to treat and prevent disease. And he's been proven to be right. And in doing so, provided a strong vision for the evolution of the field. From what was an idea, a worldwide industry has evolved. As of 2021, the probiotics field is estimated to generate more than $60 billion annually and spawn the development of multiple products that are available and in use around the world. I invited Dr. Gregor Reed, the 2021 Dr. Rogers Prize co-winner, to join me for a conversation that matters about where the future of probiotics will take us. Dr. Reed, welcome. Hello, thank you. When I take a look at your work and think about what it is that you, you've, well, you know, helped to help the world to understand, you go back to the point where there was something that you saw that others didn't. That has led us to this widespread acceptance of probiotics as being a part of a healthy life. What was it that you saw? Really, I saw a person, um, Dr. Andrew Bruce, uh, I was a postdoctoral fellow in Calgary, and I, w I came to Toronto to set up a collaboration with him. And he was a urologist who had just moved from Queens to McGill and then Toronto was setting up a lab. And that was 1982. But in 1973, he published this paper where he looked at women who had a urinary tract infection. And he had a control group who never got an infection. And he swabbed the sort of urogenital surface. And sure enough, in the ones that got infected, he found E. coli. But in the ones that were healthy, found lactobacilli, and he said, well, wait a minute, I wonder if these organisms are potentially important in preventing infection. And so, really, he should get the credit for the idea. And I came along and I said, well, let, let's look at the lactobacilli. And, and at that time, I mean, the, the word probiotic was really not anywhere. And so, we started to do research and we published papers, 83, 84, 85. And again, the, the word probiotic didn't sort of really appear until even a few years after that. So I, I give him the credit for it. And um, I, I think that it shows an example of a collaboration where you have a clinician or someone who's a healthcare professional who's seeing the problem in the patients. And then you have a scientist who's interested in, in doing something about it. And collectively, that's how things happen. And just as a scientist might discover something in the lab that then passes to the clinician, you get this two-way interaction. And so I, I think it was because of that that we sort of really delved into it. Was it a little bit of a eureka moment? Or was it more of a, hmm, maybe we need to uh, understand more? Um, I think eureka's probably gone too far. But I think it was certainly... 
um, a completely different out there, out the box thinking. I mean, that's why people said you're off your head and you shouldn't work with a surgeon, you'll be a slave in the lab and all these terrible things. And I went a completely different route. I was supposed to be an academic in a university department. And I said, no, no, I want to work in a hospital. I want to get interaction with patients and see how uh, clinicians think. So it was more, let's see where this road takes us. And uh, we just yeah, kept going. And uh, lo and behold, it took us to a place where uh, suddenly, the, eventually, the world woke up. And that was maybe 20 years after that. Well, in those early days, though, you said people have said that, well, you were off your head. <laughs> well, that is, you know, I, I couldn't help but think of Dr. Semmelweis when he was making these determinations around germs and so on, and people, in essence, ran him out of the profession, and it was very, very challenging. In your case, you didn't allow those naysayers to stand in the way. What helped you to get beyond that? Well, yeah, as a kid, you know, as a kid, I was told I wouldn't, uh, in Scotland, we have um, O levels and then higher levels. And I was told I wouldn't get any O levels and I got seven. I was told I wouldn't get higher as I got five and I was told I wouldn't get to university and I got to university. And it was this constant, I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, you don't know me. And, and so uh, when it came to this, I was really kind of, uh, and I've got to be careful, I'm on camera, but, but you know, screw you. I, uh, I, I'm not going to be put off by you. I'm going to do this. And you might not see it, but I see something here. And, but also I was protected by Dr. Bruce in, in urology because we were in a hospital. He had some access to funds. Uh, in fact, we got some clinical trials we did on antibiotics and things. And we, we used some of that money to, to work on lactobacilli. So I, I, I think it would have been harder if I'd been in an academic department because then I would really have got, uh, you know, oh, you don't have any grants, this is crazy, why, you, you know. And so on an everyday basis, I wasn't seeing that. Mm -hmm. uh, it was when I applied for grants and they, they literally laughed at them. One grant came back from MRC and said, why are you doing this with antibiotics? And <laughs> it's like, okay, you don't get it, do you? Uh, um, so I think there was part of me was just a fighter uh, from my background of, I'm sorry, I'm not taking this. So it starts. Where does this journey take you as it starts to unfold? Because at the time, you have no idea where it's going. You know, I mean, this is what is so much about being at the beginning of something. You know the path isn't laid out for you, and the process of discovery is an interesting one. So yeah. what was the next insight? Well, first of all, I mean, it's interesting because there when we got to different stages, there are sharks out there that want to then take advantage of it. And they'll come and they'll say, well, we'll take this to NASDAQ and we'll make you a millionaire, blah, blah, blah. All along, we had a path of, first of all, we have to understand these organisms lactobacilli in that case. We have to understand if they're properties that we think are going to work and how we think they'll work. And then you get to the point where, okay, now we have to try it. And uh, Dr. Bruce had this expression, dirty quickies. And basically, it was a small study at sort of test five, six patients just to see what was going to happen. And of course, you get ethics approval. But we started to see things. Wait a minute. Th th this is having an effect against E. coli. And it's not having an effect against enterococci. So we need to look at another lactobacillus. And so you, you take those steps. And they're leading you towards, is there enough for us to continue going in human trials? In terms of the bigger field, 
uh, what I took from that and what eventually came about more because of the Human Microbiome Project, because until that came out, no one cared about beneficial microbes. But I, I could see, wait a minute, the, the, there is something in microbes that are not hurting us. It's like there's more snakes that don't kill you than snakes that kill you. But, and and we, we saw this even in the intestine. There was uh, people like Bill Costert and Gerald Tanak, uh, other people who had been studying good organisms in the gut. And that fuel hadn't been exploited well enough. And, and so I started to see some people thinking, well, maybe those lactobacilli might also have a role in the gut. So it was, it was um, in my mind, the focus was on where we could take it to help women, but I could see in the periphery these other things started to happen. And if you look back in the literature, it also came down to what was available. So we couldn't go and do a clinical trial uh, because there was no product to test. Whereas in Finland, there was an organism that had been uh, sold to a, a dairy company and so the dairy company now had this yogurt or fermented food with the probiotic in it. And so if you look back in, in who was doing studies on probiotics, it was people in Finland and also in Japan because they had a probiotic from 1935. And so because that product was available, you can do more studies in the gut, on allergy and other things. So really the, the, the field didn't, it sort of grew in bits. There was, there was us doing our thing and then there was Finland and, and then because they collaborate and we collaborate, other people said, well, maybe there's something in this. Mm -hmm. So it, it was really, um, I don't know if, that, if that's a good description, but to me, that was the trajectory that we're going on. I got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Well, then you start to have this interconnectedness in different cultures, different disciplines. And then you start to see the way uh, it, it gets placed into and, and starts to build out. Well, you see, I'm a believer in collaboration. I, I, I think you can't possibly be good at everything. And so I went out of my way to collaborate. One guy was from the Netherlands. He was a, a biophysicist. And we had a terrific collaboration because he looked at properties of organisms. And so we used some of his techniques to find out more about our strain. So now you're going, you know, um, maybe you go to France, you go to the Netherlands, you go to New Zealand, you get, wherever there are people that you think can help you uh, with a question. And what that does is it spreads the field. And it's the same as the Finns. They started to bring in other people. And then when they published their papers, people were, oh, we should try that too. And then you get, you get more lights on the planet that are lighting up and saying, wait a minute, let's get into this. And, Come 2001, um, Argentina saw that this was happening and their government didn't know what to do about probiotics. And so they asked the World Health Organization, actually it was the, the Food Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, they asked, could you get an expert panel to tell us what probiotics are? And they then asked the World Health Organization to come in and um, it turned out that I chaired the panel. But... Um, that was a sign again of, of a country, an industry, just not really understanding the field. And by then, even, even though it was still, I was still being ridiculed, by then there was a lot of paper. We had published a lot of papers by 2001. And so that was why I think I was on the panel and then asked to cheer it because I had a track record in this field. And of course, we came out with the definition of probiotics and 
that opened up a whole uh, bunch of things. Okay, this is the perfect point to ask that question. What exactly is a probiotic? Well, the definition that we came up with, uh, and this was international panel, uh, was live microorganisms, which, now that changed in 2014 to that. So poor grammar on our part, but which, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit on the host. So if you take that in pieces, first of all, they have to be live. They're microorganisms, so they're not chemicals, they're microorganisms, administered. Now we use that word specifically because people had only thought of probiotics being consumed. And because we're working on the urogenital tract, oh, wait a minute, you could administer probiotics to the vagina, you could administer it to the skin, you could administer it in other ways. So it's administer, not consumed, in adequate amounts. And you know, even to this day, you see companies that publish and they say, we've got billions and billions and we have more, more lactobacilli or more bifidobacteria. That's not what's important. What's the adequate amount that you need to have an effect? And then the last part is a, a benefit. Now, the, we didn't specify you know, a, a specific benefit because there could be many benefits. And, and so benefit on the host, and then I, always, I used to say to students, okay, um, I took a probiotic this morning. My life's been changed forever. Do you believe me? No. So what would make you believe me? Well, you know, if, if there was a, a trial and someone took the exact same thing and they benefited and, and then someone took a placebo and they didn't benefit, right? I said, so you have to show that there is a benefit and you have to do the human studies or, or if you're studying a horse, then you do studies with a horse. And that's why we didn't say humans. We said administer the host. And so it, these were the reasons that that definition came about. And I think... It, did it has stood the, the, the test of time, and when it was re-looked at in 2014, as I say, there was just the change to the one word. And unfortunately, too many people have not gone back to that definition, and, and I think that to some extent they're abusing it, really, because, you know, you see on websites that they're bringing out products, and you look and you say, they've never been tested in humans. The strains have never been tested in humans. And yet you're implying that this helps with autism or obesity or whatever the, the claims are in the company. So I think the, the definition is much more important than people realize. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Well, I do too, because let's say we are talking about, and I posed this question to Dr. Janet Fraser from NIH, and you know, she was part of the Human Genome Project back in the 1990s. I said, okay, if we're going to do that, let's say a fecal matter transplant, how do I know whether or not the genome of that transplant is going to be acceptable to the host? And she said, that's a very important question. And like to your point, you really have to say, is this the right application and formula of the probiotic for that patient? Yeah, and of course, back when we were looking in history, back in the 2000s, that you couldn't really do much about that because there weren't many products. Now people have been developing more strains and they're uh, understanding what the strains do. And there's even a, a couple of websites, a woman in Canada, who came up with this, I think it's a terrific idea. She said, Let, let's look at all the clinical trials on all these uh, strains and then have a website 
um, probioticchart.ca where you can go, if, if, I, if you have irritable bowel syndrome, you can go and say which probiotic has been tested that I can look at. So that, that became great because now there are different products and, and there's studies to show that they have an effect. But that wasn't the case back then. And so until you get the products to test, then yeah, yeah, it's, um, you, you, you have no options. So you start to work on developing appropriate treatment measures for women who have urinary tract infections. But then you took it to East Africa. Why? Why was it important that you take this to East Africa? Was it a way of saying, you know, I've got something here that can be a benefit? The two organisms we worked on, which uh, I think they have good properties, I just want to cover one point, that you choose a probiotic to have an effect. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, if that organism doesn't originate from that site, then it's not going to work. That's not going to happen. You're, a probiotic doesn't stick around. It doesn't colonize and stay for the most part. And so therefore you want it to do something. You do this, the, the research to make it do something. And then you keep taking it so it keeps doing it or, or the patient gets back to normal and you, need to, you can stop taking it. It doesn't need it. You know, doesn't need it. So um, the strains that we looked at, one of them, lactobacillus rhamnosus, uh, it's called GR1. That's a whole other story of why we picked that. It wasn't an ego boost. We were in the lab one day. We'd better give names to these friggin' organisms, and we chose different ones. But So um, we found that it, it's good in dairy. And uh, Stephen Lewis had come to Western. Uh, he was the uh, United Nations ambassador to AIDS in Africa and, you know, a wonderful speaker, a wonderful person. And he had challenged people. He said, you have to help us with HIV. So... Um, long and the short of it is the person who was there was in housing department. So I got a call from a guy in housing. I'm like, what? And we got together and, and he was, and it's to this day, his wonderful advocate, Bob, Bob Goff. And uh, I said, you can't fly in with a plane that comes in every week with the hope. You have to give them the tools to create their own hope. And why don't we make a probiotic yogurt? Why don't we show them how to make it? And so the, um, I, my dad had been born in South Africa. And I, when I finished my PhD in New Zealand, I went through Africa back home to Scotland. And when I was in particularly Kenya, I mean, the, the poverty and the, the, it was really striking. And he thought, you know, the, um, it's not my fault I was born in Scotland. I could have been born in, in a really poor part of the world. It's just by chance. And so surely we can do something to help people that aren't as well off as us. And so I had this in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something. And then here this opportunity came and we made a contact in Tanzania. We found these amazing women who set up a, 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 their own little businesses and we taught them how to make this probiotic yogurt using one of the, the strains that we had. And, and I mean, it, the challenges, we, we could take another week to talk about the challenges, but... But it was the woman uh, that uh, they also saw something. And we started with HIV. And so at that time, uh, HIV was a massive problem. It still is, but there was no antiretrovirals. They started to come in. You still get diarrhea with antiretrovirals. And, and as one of the women said, she said, um, we had a, a man who, who couldn't walk up the, the three or four stairs to our little kitchen. And after a while, 
we saw that, wait a minute, he's, and the only thing that changed was he was getting this probiotic yoga every day. He starts to walk up the stairs and, and he said, I'm not getting diarrhea anymore. And, and so the women were telling us things that were happening. Now, if you go to um, sort of medicine, they'll say, well, come on, it's pure coincidence, lucky, it's not a randomized placebo-controlled trial, blah, blah, blah. I didn't care about that. If this is making a difference to one life, oh my goodness, we've made an effect, right? And so, yeah, that, that, that's how it started and it's blossomed and, you know, it's been an amazing journey because of, I think, mostly the women in Africa and the students from Western and other places that have gone to help uh, make this happen. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. It's been an extraordinary explosion of acceptance from remarkable resistance. And I know I'm being polite here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think this was really the first probiotic in Africa because no one was going to the, I mean, you, you could buy yogurt in South Africa and you could buy it in other countries, but no one was going to the poorest of the poor and saying, no, no, why don't you make this? Why don't you, you distribute this to the community? I, I think that's, it's magical because um, even, if, even if it's only just nutrition, even if it's not wasting uh, things like milk, this is much better use because when you ferment things, you don't have contamination and you don't have the E. coli. And, and uh, at the time, one of the trips I went, I said, there must be something that is locally made here that we could add to the yogurt. And I looked around and there's this tree. I said, what's that tree? It says, Moringa. So I looked up Moringa and it's full of micronutrients, packed with them. And so I said, why don't we do an experiment? So we get these two Dutch guys, two students. I said, do an experiment, see if you can add enough of these micronutrients, which would represent about 20% of the daily necessities, and add it to yogurt. Well, it worked. It didn't taste good. <laughs> it tasted a bit like earth. But the local people didn't mind. Now, here's a case again. It's local milk. It's a local tree. They're grinding the leaves and they're getting these micronutrients and they're doing it themselves. I mean, that to me is, uh, is what we should be doing. Well, I can't help but think that in doing so, you're helping feed people and making them feel better. They, they have the opportunity then to realize their own potential. They, they become better contributors to society. Their society, their local communities are then enriched and there's an economic benefit as well. And this is why it's so important. And, and I, and you know, um, I appreciate and love the fact that you're saying this needs to be available to everybody. It's not only for those who have access to the highest levels of health care. We got a couple of grants, uh, one from the Gates Foundation, one's from Grand Challenges Canada, and then another one from IDRC. And nowhere in the grant did it say, bring back the lessons from Africa to Canada. And I was quite upset about that because there's so much we can learn from people who have nothing. And uh, the, the whole value chain, if you look at the value chain of, of, of yogurt, it's obviously the cows, the production of the milk, there's the people that, that ferment, then you have packaging, and then you have retail and sales, etc. That's a, a terrific model, and you could have that in parts of Canada. 
And so it's taken a long time, but finally um, uh, Youth Opportunities in London is going to be doing that. And Youth Opportunities is unemployed youths. They deal, they see a lot of homeless people. To me, that's what we should be helping them with. So then you've got people who are unemployed now learning a new skill. You've got homeless people maybe getting better food than they could get. And, and maybe they, in fact, come in and get a job in this value chain that you create. And um, some people might get upset because we've created this milk system now. I mean, we have a farmer that had to build a huge big barn for their cows because the system didn't like that they were grazing out in the grass. <laughs> and so, like, we should be changing those systems and allowing, even if it's on a small scale, for this type of thing that's, that's helped so many people in Africa to help people in Canada. So you've now shifted. As I understand your research, you're looking at the relationship between the microbiome and women's breasts and its relationship to cancer. The breast idea um, came about, and I, I mean, I, you know, you don't know where these ideas come from. Uh, my mum had breast cancer. That had quite an effect on me uh, when I was uh, um, 14 or 15. And there was a group in Spain that I started to collaborate with a little bit, and, and I was quite impressed by what they said. And so it turns out if you have breast cancer, um, sorry, if you have um, breastfeeding a child, you reduce your chance of getting cancer. So, as the mother. As the mother. So why is that? So, and then what are the organisms that is being passed on from the milk to the baby? Because really that's a fundamental part of evolution. There must be some important reason. And okay, how do the organisms get there? So, and what happens if you've never breastfed? You've never had a baby. So I started to think, well, first of all, the organisms can go from the skin through the nipple, but is there any other way they could get in? Could they come from, for example, the gut through the bloodstream and, and get there? So I had this crazy idea and, and I went to a couple of uh, female surgeons in London who were fantastic. They said, we'll biopsy and, and we'll see, but in Canada, we're not allowed to biopsy the tumor. I said, oh, I wanna know if the bacteria are in the tumor, we can't. Because if you take it out and it's a grade four, whereas it's really a grade one, it messes up the treatment. So by chance, we heard about an Irish group who said, no, no, we can, we can actually biopsy the tumor. I don't know why Ireland's different. And it turns out, yeah, we found bacteria. And we found different bacteria in those with cancer than those that were healthy. So, of course, it took us about a year to publish it because people said, you're crazy. We tried to get a grant and they said we were crazy. And... And so I actually gave up that research because we couldn't do any more. Almost gave it up. There's one other study that we're, uh, my colleague is finishing up now. But um, since then, other people around the world have found the same thing. Now, that doesn't prove bacteria cause cancer. We can't say that. But imagine if it did. And what would the role be? And how would you then prevent it? So I, I think it's an area that should be explored. It's, um, it's not cause and effect. And you know, I am not going to claim... Uh, anything, but um, it was also part of women's health because there's too many women are getting breast cancer and dying of breast cancer. And so, again, it was the female part of our work. I mean, Africa, to some extent, was a side project because it was being done by the people. Our work continued to try and help women's health. And so that was a piece of it. So we have seen this explosion and embracing of probiotics 
particularly added to food, even as a standalone consumable capsule. Consumers are now starting to get confused. How do they find the truth? How do they find what will and won't work for them? Uh, you know, where is that information? It's, a, it's an interesting thing. Um, when 2004, if we go back to around about 2004, if I had asked the Dean of Medicine uh, uh, what a probiotic was, the Dean would not have had a clue. That year, I think I've got the years right, Danon launched Activia in Canada. And 75% of, of households in Quebec tried it. That's unbelievable. It tells you there was a real interest. The, 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 um, there was something about the product. Obviously, it had to taste good. But after that, all these other companies said, wait a minute, they're making all this money. We, we better do the same. And so everybody started to bring out products and probiotics, right? I go back to the definition. Danone had done studies on transit time, which is essentially if you've got a bit of constipation, if you increase transit time in the gut, then the food goes through quicker, right? You don't want it to go flying through, obviously, but transit time. So they had done studies on that. So then I look at all these other yogurts. Well, what have you done? You're calling it probiotic. What is the strain that you stuck in this? What has it done? And so consumers have then been swamped. And that was just the beginning in terms of foods, but um, there's all these other supplements and things coming out. And it's no wonder they're confused because you're right. Something that helps IBS may not help a woman with uh, recurrent urinary tract infections or, or diarrhea, or, or, well, not diarrhea because that's IBS, but, you know, other conditions. So um, this website I mentioned earlier, uh, which is also in the States, uh, I think it's called um, usproboticguide.com in the States, it lists uh, um, a, a whole bunch of, of, of conditions. And actually the, the diseases, which you could then go back to the regulatory uh, system that only a drug can claim that it does anything for disease, which I think is ridiculous because we all know that food can prevent disease. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, in the website, they recognize that, listen, we know that you've got IBD, which is a disease. Can you use a probiotic? If you can, here's what we might recommend, right? So I think that has helped, but not enough people know about it. And the other thing is on the label, I don't think we're strict enough. It doesn't, first of all, it should say the strain. And my example is tonight you and I are going to go for dinner with George Clooney. Would you like to come? You, of course, you'll say, sure, I'd love to meet George. Ask him about his new film with Julia Roberts, right? So we get to the restaurant and George walks in and he's an 85-year-old guy who is obviously not the one I was thinking. Well, I didn't tell you who I was thinking. I just said George Clooney. So just because you have the same name doesn't mean you're the famous actor. And on the label, it might say lactobacillus rhamnosus. Well, it's just an organism. Tell me what the GR1 means. Tell me what GG means. Tell me specifically what that organism is. And then I can go back and see what research has been done on it. So the label doesn't help. Secondly, the label doesn't allow you to go to a website that shows studies on that because you're a food remember. So I think we've made it more difficult for people and you can't expect the everyday person to go on PubMed for crying out loud. And, and, and so I, I think we could make labels much more informative, but that is going to take this massive change in regulatory uh, agencies, 
Canada has done better than the U.S. and Europe, but we could still do more. So going back to your definition about it being the right microorganism applied in and administered and administered in the proper way for that patient or host, when somebody who's given a treatment of you know antibiotics for some treatment or condition, then uh, it's almost cavalier the response that says, oh, and make sure you take a biotic afterwards, probiotic afterwards. But which one? And people don't know. Yeah, I would say at least some docs are now saying take a probiotic. Yeah. I mean, that to me is a massive jump because that never happened before. Um, you're right. And so therefore, do you go back to this website again? And do you say, I'm going to take the, um, this product uh, or this product? No point in taking this one. I know it's... The, the health food store person says it's a wonderful product and it's got billions and billions of, and lots of strains. It's not been tested. Take something that's been tested. So we're getting there, but it's going to take time. And again, you need education. And if, if we could have physicians have courses on probiotics, wait a minute, they could then look at the literature themselves and say to the patient, you should take a probiotic because you're on this antibiotic. Here's the three that I recommend that I know are available in Shoppers Drug Mart or wherever you live, go and try them. Mm -hmm. That would be perfect. That's the next step. Well, congratulations on being uh, given the Dr. Rogers Prize. I think it's an extraordinary prize. D uh, Dr. Rogers is amazing. I mean, you know, I've got friends, I'm sure you have as well, that s say they've got a, a type of cancer, say a lung cancer. Well, they're talking to the oncologist, they're talking to the surgeon, they're talking to the family doctor, they're talking to someone else, and there's four or five people involved, and no one is quarterbacking. And no one is saying, look, I could give you, say, a, a probiotic or a acupuncture or massage therapy, whatever that alternative, alternative is, that horrible word again, uh, I could quarterback for you. What a great thing that he did. Because we all need that. Because <laughs> I had a friend in Vancouver, and... Um, she was waiting for the team all to get together to decide what was going to happen to her. They waited two months. The team never met. And that's two months more that that tumor grew. And it, probably to the point where it couldn't be surgically removed. So imagine if you have someone in the middle saying, wait a minute, we have to make this decision today, not wait two more months. This would help the patient. So I, I, um, that, that what is what really inspired me about Dr. Rogers. And the fact that they had this incredible prize, I mean, it was, it was an honor, but it was also, um, I, I don't think enough people know about what he did. And, and I think that message, and we should be teaching medical students who come out and end up in family practice, we should be teaching them to be the quarterback like he was. Does the prize play a role in helping to accelerate that? I think it does. Um, I think the recognition is a big thing. Um, how, do you, how do you quantify recognition? Um, I think what it does is hopefully gives you more of a voice because no one will listen. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, if you haven't got Nobel Prize, no one will listen to you. And I've met Nobel laureates that frankly don't inspire me at all, but they, did, they just so happens they did amazing work. Um, if you have a prize, people should say, okay, like today, I wouldn't be doing this interview if I didn't get the prize. 
And maybe through this interview, someone will be inspired to do something. And so you have to use that uh, award to try and get the message out to other people because you alone can't do it. You need to have other people inspired and working hard and, and contributing. So I, I hope that that's what happens with it. But um, I, I think more people need to know about the prize and also Dr. Rogers because uh, I, I think it's amazing what he did. Well, I thank you for your contribution and for the extraordinary work that you did. Despite the challenges, you kept going. Yeah, um, I, I, I wasn't going to give up. <laughs> um, I, I think even today, I, I, uh, even though I've sort of stepped back, I, I still uh, have some fight in me. And, and um, one of my students, my final PhD student, he's been working on honeybees because I had this idea, well, maybe... Uh, honey, uh, honeybees can benefit from probiotics as well and God imagine if we could save the honeybees so I, I, I think there's enough out there that will carry on and I'll, I'll have little pieces of it but um, yeah it was uh, it's been a great journey